Well, once again, good morning. My name's Ben. I'm so glad to see you all here. I, I'm glad to see you in part because, like Greg said, I also was gone with my family for a, a, an extended break, and man, how incredible that was. Uh, I got to swim with dolphins. Um, that's, that's, that's crazy. I held a tiger, but most of all, I got to spend a lot of time with my wife and kids. It was, it was fantastic. And the other thing that was really fun for us is we got to attend another church. And in fact, I spoke there a few times and uh, just fell in love with those folks. But it never, 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 never um, uh, ceases to amaze me how incredibly awesome this place is. And uh, as Greg said, thank you so much to all the volunteers, the leaders, the staff around here who uh, carried things on as we were gone. And uh, thank each of you for being uh, a part of just an amazing church and making me and my family feel, uh, feel so loved. Well, Greg told you that we're beginning a new message series called Upon This Rock, and I want to set you up for what we're going to talk about for the next few weeks. So in just a matter of a few weeks, we're going to be 10 years old, and that's a major milestone. It's a ma- major milestone because in America today, only 20% of the churches that begin last past five years. That's right, one in five churches that begin last past five years. In fact, if you look around Westchester, North Cincinnati, there are a bunch of churches that started and just couldn't uh, keep going for one reason or another. And so for our church to be approaching the 10-year mark is a really big deal. And we, we, what we thought would be important to do is we get ready for that celebration that we're going to have, and you'll hear about that coming up, and for our reaching out into the community around us as we get ready for our 10th year. What we thought we would do is go back to a handful of basic truths from God's Word, and this message series is what that's all about. And this phrase, upon this rock, I want you to look at the screen for just a moment. This phrase, upon this rock, is not just an ordinary phrase, and it's not just a marketing scheme. These are the words of Jesus. Now, I want to just tell you what he said. Jesus said that he would build his church, and that's the big capital C church, the big C church. Not just individual churches. We, we are a small C church that's a part of the big C church, God's church in the world. God's people around the globe Various colors, shapes, sizes, income levels, education levels, goals and ambitions, geography, all that changes. But the big C church that Jesus started, here's what he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now in that set of scriptures where he was talking about that, he was looking at one of his disciples who had just declared this phrase. The apostle Peter had looked at Jesus and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You're the Christ. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, In flesh and blood, Peter, has not revealed this to you, but my Father is in he- who is in heaven. And upon this rock, that's our phrase, upon this rock, I will build my church. And so what we're going to do is we're going to talk about a handful of foundational, absolutely essential, non-negotiable realities that churches must rally around if they're going to be a part of what God's doing in this world. Now, for us as a congregation, it has special import today because as we approach our 10th anniversary, we want to make sure that these things that are values to God are values to us. And they're not just values in the sense that they're on a piece of paper somewhere. They're not just, on a, sl- they're not just a slogan. They're not just on a banner. But they're values that are lived out in the way we do church. A lot of great churches in North Cincinnati. There really are. A lot of, a lot of really great churches. In, in fact, I encourage you on a some Sunday, not today, please don't get up and leave, but some Sunday if you get a chance or when you go on vacation, maybe go to a different church another year, but, but try a few other churches because God's doing some pretty incredible things around the world. 
But wherever he's doing great things, it's in part because there's a handful of people who are willing to take seriously what Jesus said was important and live it out in their lives. And so today we're going to talk about one key value. And this word, because it gets used, it gets used so often, often can lose its specialness, its form, if you will. It gets, used, it gets used so often that sometimes it gets watered down, but it's a very important word. It's essential to what God puts you on this earth to do anyway, and it's also essential for the life of every local church. And it's the word worship. Worship. Now, worship is a powerful concept in the Bible. It's a powerful activity for you and I to engage in. Worship is life changing. Some of you come from a Presbyterian or Reformed background, and they have a statement of belief called the Westminster Confession of Faith. It may not mean anything to you, but the first statement of the Westminster Confession of Faith deals with what the whole purpose of human beings being on earth is to begin with. It begins like this. What is the chief purpose of man? What's what's the reason we're here? The answer is, the chief purpose of man is to worship God and enjoy him forever. So the Presbyterians in the room just got a little chill up their spine. They're like, oh, Westminster Confession. Methodists are like, what? What's going on? All right. (laughs) So all all that statement's trying to do is it's trying to help us understand just how important this concept of worship is. And like what often happens with a lot of special words that carry multiple layers of meaning, sometimes we can focus on one piece of the word and then, and then miss the beauty and the richness and the diversity around the concept. So today, the whole purpose is, is to regain corporately all of us, maybe you don't need it, but some of us do, I do, to regain a sense of just how special it is that we get to worship God not just how special it is, how important it is, and how incredible it is that God has given us a place right here in North Cincinnati where we can invite other people to come and worship God too. Worship Him and enjoy Him forever. Not just in this life, but in eternity. And not just in eternity, but here and now as well. So let me, let me give you a little confession. Jesus is greater than I have ever portrayed Him to be. For 10 years, I've stood on this stage or at the theater when we met at the rave or at a local high school or at the old Zion Global Building, and I've opened up God's Word and every Sunday tried to take it seriously and talk about Jesus. At the end of the day, that's our subject, Jesus. But the truth of the matter is, in all that effort and all those years and all the work that our children's ministry team has done in helping kids understand Jesus and our student ministries team has done in trying to help students understand Jesus and our hospitality team has done in trying to create that warm and welcoming open environment that Jesus offers everybody and all that, here's the truth about Jesus. He's far greater than we have ever portrayed him to be. And it's his greatness that opens the door for us to worship him. It's his greatness that calls us to worship him because here's the truth. When Jesus enters a person's life, it changes everything. When Jesus enters a person's life, it changes everything. Can I I make a few just statements that um, if if you're taking notes or whatever, you might want to just grab a few of these um, because I don't have time to fully unpack them, but they're, they're powerful. And these are the things that for the last four weeks I've been kind of focusing on. And, and uh, let me just warn you. When a pastor's gone a few weeks, 
and he doesn't get to preach, like, to, um, it's not good for you. <laughs> because I get kind of like filled up with stuff. So I have like five sermons I want to preach today. I'm going to preach one on worship, okay? But, but, but to do that, I, I want to I help us understand something. See, see, when you go to a lot of churches, and, and maybe not the church itself, but maybe the way we interpret church, what happens is, is we think that churches are all there to help people manage the sin in their life. Stop doing the bad stuff and pick up the good stuff. But, but the truth of the matter is, is that sin, sin is not a problem that Jesus first and foremost came to solve. Jesus came primarily to connect us to the Father. Now, now sin gets involved in that. Sin separates us from God. And so in that sense, Jesus came to deal with the ultimate problem of sin. But Jesus isn't primarily concerned about you being a better person, managing your sin, doing less bad and more good. It's far deeper than that and far more miraculous than that. And, and it echoes back to the greatness of Jesus. He isn't here to just make us better people. Jesus came to literally raise us from the dead. See, see here's the truth. Sin didn't make you bad. Sin made you dead. The Bible declares that we were dead in our transgressions and sin. We were spiritually dead. And so God sends his son, Jesus, to live a perfect life, and he gives his life on the cross, and he's resurrected from the dead. And the Bible describes that resurrection from the dead this way, that he is the first fruit of the resurrection. He's the first. And everybody that puts their faith and trust in him, they don't just get called to be better. They get called to come alive, to come alive. Sin gets dealt with, and we are called to live a better life, a life that reflects the life of Christ. But it isn't sin management. It's life abundant. Those things are connected, of course. But what you focus on makes all the difference. Is Jesus simply the one who's asking you to not have as much fun as the world offers and instead live your godly Christian life? Or is he the one that literally raised you from the dead so that you could have a relationship with the Father? See, when you understand that Jesus brought us back from the dead, it opens up something in your heart, a response, a gratitude, thankfulness. It opens up our heart to worship. Sin didn't make us bad, it made us dead, and we can't do anything about being dead on our own. So God sends a Savior and raised him from the dead, and he works in our mortal bodies to raise us from the dead spiritually as well. And so our response then back to our Savior is, I literally owe everything to you. I mean everything. Not just the fact that I have a relationship with the Father. I owe the fact that I'm, I'm alive. I'm spiritually alive. I'm physically alive. You've given me a purpose in this world. You've given me a, a responsibility. You've given me a privilege. You've blessed me. You've blessed me, blessed me with the air that I breathe. You've blessed me with the country that I was born in. And I, I came away with a newfound respect for the, the good old U.S. of A. In fact, I wore my American flag shorts everywhere I could just to represent. And God blessed us in this room with the opportunity to be born here. Everything we have, ultimately, 
The intellect we have that opened up doors for us to get an education, that opened up doors for us to get a good job, ultimately from the Lord. The parents, the families we were born in, the good and the bad experiences that came with that, that put us in the place that we're in today, from the Lord. And all of this stuff comes together to propel those that have been raised to life in Christ to worship our Savior. So worship is this mega concept that goes far beyond just the music we sing, but it certainly includes that. In fact, I'm going to talk about that in just a few moments. I mean, what we just did and what we'll do over and over again for the next 10 years and what we'll invite people to be a part of as they stand here and they can't believe that a church can put on a, a production like this, you know, this quality, that in, this engaging, all, all that's a part of it. But worship as a mega concept, a mega biblical concept, goes so beyond just what we do here in this room. It involves our entire lives. And so at Four Corners, we don't want to belittle the work of Jesus, and we don't want to make this concept of worship so small because we believe that because Jesus is so great, it should impact every part of our lives and all of our lives. What we do on Sunday morning as there are lyrics on the screen and what we do on Monday morning when there are no lyrics and no screens, all of our lives should be lived in a response of worship and gratitude to the one who raised us from the dead. Because Jesus is great, he deserves to be worshipped. Now this word worship comes from, it's connected to, it has derivatives from the, the idea of worth worth, the worth of something, the value of something. In fact, here on the screen, the worthness of Jesus is why we worship him, because he's so awesome and so great. He's significant. He has significant value, not just as a, a, a good example to humanity, although he certainly is that, not just as a good teacher, not just as the beginner of a movement, but simply because of who he is and what he represents and the impact he's had on our lives. Worship declares the worth of Jesus. When you and I live our lives in worship, we reflect back to God the value we put on him. Here is this awesome, great Savior. We live our lives in response, and then we become a reflection, a subjective reflection of his objective value and worth. And so worship then becomes a powerful force in our lives. A powerful force. Worship is powerful. Worship is powerful. It's powerful, powerful because it awakens our minds to God's activity in our life. If I'm having a crummy week, I can come and stand right there on the front row next to my wife who sings wonderfully, by the way. Hopefully you get to stand next to somebody that sings wonderfully or at least they sing quietly, right? One or the other, right? So I get to stand there, she sings wonderfully. And I feel, have you ever felt this? I feel the stirring in me that somehow begins to put my week into perspective. Not only that, not only does it deal with the week in the past, it's in coming together in active, intentional worship to God when we're singing or reading the scripture or preaching or giving or serving, whatever, all that's worship. That only, not only deals with my week in the past, but it deals with my week to come. It deals with the future. It actually equips me and fills my bucket to live the week to come. Worship is powerful. It changes perspective. It puts us in our right place and puts God in his right place. 
And it puts the details of our lives in their right place. And there are people outside of the walls of this church that have no concept of where their life fits into a grander scheme. And yet those who've been raised from life to Christ and get the benefit of coming together and worshiping an authentic and real God in an authentic and real way, those people regularly get their perspectives adjusted. That's good for us. It's good for me at least. I regularly need my perspective adjusted because I can get focused, can you, on my own little thing. It's important, it matters, it's significant, but it's really just still my own little thing. And in worship, my eyes get lifted up to something grander and greater. That's why we're called regularly to come together with intentionality and worship our Savior. And of course, Worship involves all of life. You can worship God outside of church. But the writers of the Bible knew how important it was to come together to worship corporately so much that the writer in the book of Hebrews says this, that don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Don't forsake that. It's important to gather together. It's why every time you walk near the front of this building and you see the words real love now, we want you to think about that first word, real. And the way, we, the way we put meaning on that word, it goes like this, that there's a real God who can be worshipped by real people without having to put on an air, without having to pretend, without having to get you know, dolled up, without having to even dress up. You can literally come as you are physically and spiritually and emotionally, economically, and you can connect really with the real God because worship is powerful, it begins to adjust our perspective. Let me share with you a, a couple of places in the Bible where we're given just how powerful worship is. You heard of, ever heard of little David, you know, Goliath? I, I know most of you, many of you at least have heard that story, but there's an episode in David's life when he engages Saul. There's young David and King Saul. And King Saul is troubled. He's a troubled soul. He's got evidence that his kingdom is about to be taken from him. Things are in disarray. His own family is in disarray. And he is troubled. A lot of the language around Saul looks like depression. And David has a unique gift and anointing on his life with music. In fact, in fact, David gets used by God to write a lot of the book of Psalms, which are ultimately songs written about the greatness of God. They're worship songs to God, the original hymnal, the book of Psalms. And so Saul calls upon young David to come and play for him, to play the, the lyre, a small harp-like thing, and to sing these songs. We can assume that many of the songs he sang ultimately become our book of Psalms in the Bible. And the Bible says that when David would sing and play... It would have a calming effect on Saul's life. I mean, he would be like just at his wit's end, but in an atmosphere of worship, something happened to him spiritually and had implications on him emotionally, and he was recharged and renewed and rejuvenated. And worship is incredibly powerful. The prophet Elisha in the Old Testament the Bible says that in 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 15, just a little snippet of Elisha's life. Here's what it says. Elisha's speaking, and he says, Bring me a musician. And then when the musician played, the hand of the Lord 
came upon him, Elisha. The hand of the Lord came upon Elisha. There's something powerful that happens when people come and present themselves and things like worship music and lyrics are added and we intentionally give our lives over to worship. The hand of God lands on people. God still does this. This isn't just Old Testament reality. In this room, it is not unusual for people who are at their wit's end, troubled, discouraged, thinking about the future, have great opportunities in front of them, but they're just uncertain where to go. And when they lift their hearts in worship, the hand of God comes down on them and touches their lives. The old timers used to say it this way, that the the presence of God gets manifest. The presence of God gets manifest in a person's life, in a time of worship. That word manifest is a powerful biblical word. God's presence manifests in your life. In fact, let, let, me, let me just show you on my, on my little screen here if we can make this work for just a second. The word manifest, see if we can do this, comes from two Latin derivatives. There's mani. You, uh, ladies, you get a manicure. It's the hand, all right? The hand. The Bible said that the hand of the Lord would come on Elisha. The word manifest has to do with the hand of God landing on a person. And when the hand of God touches somebody's life, it changes them. So when God's presence gets manifest in your life, when you open your life up to worship, maybe in a time like when we come together here and we have lyrics and there's music, God's presence gets manifest. The hand of God is touching you, but the Latin derivative money is just the first part of this word manifest. Here's the second part. It's, it's the idea of fest. And again, kind of a Latin derivative here. It's the idea of a, of a party or a dance. So when, when God's hand manifests itself, when God's presence manifests itself in a congregation in your life, literally what, what, what's being conveyed is, is that God's hand is dancing in your life. It's the dancing hand of God that touches. In worship, God's hand dances in people's life. It generates a party. There's joy. Worship begins to put things in perspective. The power of God becomes real in people's lives as we intentionally open ourselves up. And the dancing hand of God moves across a congregation. I saw this while we were gone. People I don't know have no real uh, sense of their history just showed up in a church like a visitor might show up in our church. And I watched the congregation rally around a few lyrics and biblical concepts, and they lifted their voices, and as they lifted their voices, they lifted their hearts up to their Heavenly Father. And though I didn't know their story, I watched a transformation happen in that room. I've seen it happen here dozens and dozens and dozens of times. As the hand of God dances across the congregation, touching individuals. So I saw people crying, I saw people standing still, not even opening their voices. I saw a handful of people sitting down. And though their expressions were varied, there was a common theme that God was at work. As they lifted their hearts in worship to the great Savior, and their weeks got put into perspective. And what was going on in their lives found its proper place. And God danced across the congregation, and he manifested himself. This is the power of worship. 
Worship and the dancing hand of God is something we get to be a part of. And we get to invite other people to be a part of it. You wouldn't say to your friend, come to my church because God's hand dances in the church. No, don't, don't do that. Don't do that, all right? But what you can say is at our church, you can come and be real. And you can encounter a real God and that can make a real difference in your life. See, worship is that powerful that it literally can put the past week in perspective and it can put the future in perspective and it can begin to bring order out of the chaos of our lives and it can begin to right our emotions and right our thinking. It has an impact on our behavior. That's why we are called to be a worshiping community. Wherever the local church is thriving, one common ingredient has always been and will always be is that people regularly come and voluntarily open themselves up to the worship of the one who raised them from the dead. It doesn't matter if a church is primarily known as a strong teaching church or a strong evangelistic church or a strong kids program church. If it's truly a healthy, vibrant church, somewhere near the center, there's going to be a worshiping community. Now let's just break down that concept for just a moment, worshiping community. All I'm saying there is there's a handful of individuals who have made an individual choice to come and gather together and worship God. They understand that their whole life is worship, but not just that, and that's not an excuse to them. That isn't a coverall that then exempts them. The fact that all of their life is worship then compels them to come and obey what the Scripture says when it says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. And they sometimes read the Psalms, and sometimes they have modern psalmists who write lyrics, and we project them on the screen. And they simply come and acknowledge the greatness of God. And they sing songs like we sung this morning. On Christ, the solid rock I'll stand. And it moves from being lyrics on a screen to being the cry of their heart when they say, all other ground is sinking sand. Anything else I want to build my life on, it shifts. It moves. It's transient. It changes. But Jesus is solid. And perspectives get adjusted. And the past week takes its right place. And the future begins to take shape and form. And though there are all kinds of unknowns in the future, there is a solid foundation, the great Savior of humanity, Jesus. So in the Bible, we get these beautiful pictures of people who, who would get it. And I want to take just a few moments and read for you a story from God's Word in Luke chapter 7 about one woman who got it. Some of you maybe have heard this story. It's not new. But in it, we get a powerful picture of one individual who understood what it was to worship. So Luke chapter 7. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. They typically ate laying down. I've tried to do this at my house. My wife doesn't go for it, all right? So they're reclining at the table. And then a woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. 
Very expensive. I don't know how much money, but very expensive. Alabaster was expensive. The perfume was expensive. She came with that. Probably the most prized possession that she had. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And a significant party foul occurs. I mean, here's this upstanding dinner party with dignitaries and Jesus the prophet who had great words and so people wanted to hear him. And then here's a woman who has a bad reputation and she's crying and is inconsolable, inconsolable. And she begins to wet his feet. Then she wiped his feet with her hair. She kissed them and she poured the perfume on them. Probably had to break the seal on the alabaster jar to do that. And when the Pharisee who had invited him, Jesus, saw this, he said to himself, if this, woman were, if this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is. She's a sinner. And Jesus answered him. His name, by the way, was Simon. Not Simon Peter, but Simon the Pharisee. I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, that's just gold coins, and the other 50 Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of them both. Now, which one will love him more? Simon the Pharisee replied, I suppose the one who had the biggest debt forgiven. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and he said to Simon, kind of as an illustration, looking at her, do you see this woman? And we're like, of course I saw her. I saw what she did. She's made a mockery of this party. We were dignified until she walked in. I came into your house, Simon, and you didn't give me any water for my feet That was expected and customary. But she wet my feet with her tears, and she wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, only loves a little, Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this that even forgives sins? And then Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Now go in peace. And this woman's act stands as a memorial enshrined in the pages of Scripture. For 2,000 years we've been looking at her example of what it was to give yourself over in worship. And the motivating cause behind it all is pretty simple she realized she had been forgiven much. She realized she had been raised from the dead. She realized that Jesus was great and her response was to be a response of wholehearted worship to him. And it's real easy for me to come and go through the motions of church worship go entire sets of worship, sometimes weeks at a time, and never ever pause and think about just how great Jesus is and exactly how much he had done for me. How much he's doing for me. And this is why we are called to regularly, when we feel like it and when we don't, to come and intentionally give ourselves over to worship because in this stilted time we call church service, an hour and 15 minutes a week, we, we get reminded and recalibrated on the greatness of our Savior and the right perspective of the details of our lives. I don't know about you, 
but I need that regularly. And everything wants to compete against that. My serving competes against it. My attitude competes against it. When Jill and I used to drive together to church in the morning with the kids, the drive on the way to church competed against it. We had more arguments on the way to church than at any other point in the life of the week. Our kids could get up, get ready for school, just fine, much earlier than getting up there. But on Sunday morning, everything went at a snail's pace. Did that happen for you? Everything vies against worship. But we come, and we open up our hearts, and we say, Jesus, you really are a great God. And the words and the lyrics and sometimes the, the moving images we put on screen and the smiles of people, even a warm cup of coffee, all of it compels us to reflect on our great God to write our hearts because it really is about the heart. H-E-A-R-T. Humility. Pride's the number one. We don't want to worship because we don't need him. We don't want to worship because we got this thing going on. We don't think about worship because we're consumed. It's not so much a conscious choice not to, it's just we haven't made a choice to. We're consumed on self. And so humility as a part of a heart of worship. E, emotions. Some of us are wired where we don't really enjoy emotions. That's okay, because it's both emotion and intellect, but I just want to focus on the emotion for a minute because something happens when you come and worship. It has a way of touching our emotion. And I'm not talking about the way it's expressed. You don't need to express your emotion the way I express my emotion. In fact, that's one of the problems when we come together and worship. We want everybody to do it the way we think they should do it. But I'm just talking about Jesus touching every part of our lives like like Saul's heart was touched when David would play. A calming and healing and restorative and joy-producing emotion. And some people, when that happens, then they cry. Others offer the sign of surrender. Some clap their hands because joy is present. And honestly, some are doing it and they don't quite feel the joy, but they're committed to the discipline of worshiping. And they know that in that, that God regularly will flood their lives with exactly what they need, even if in the moment their emotions aren't fully aligned with where they want them to be. Humility, emotion, adoration, just pausing long enough to say, really, I'm a blessed man. I mean, I got a roof over my head. I had food on my table. I had a car to drive to church. I have people who know me and generally like me, or at least they act like they do, and if you don't, please don't tell me differently. I think begin to reflect on the blessings in my life and I begin to adore the blessing giver. And the R one is a hard one for me. It's repentance. It's turning. The word repentance simply means to turn and I make a conscious choice in worship to turn all that I have fully in the direction of Jesus. So that whatever may have gone on in my week in my behavior, in my words, in my mind, I begin to repent and bring them into line with Jesus. It's not something I did once and for all. As a follower of Jesus, I'm a repenter who comes and gives him all that I have, all that I am, all my sin, all my hopes, and I stand on him alone. And in worship, we're called to repent. I have observed that people who don't want to repent soon stop worshiping. So I have humility, I have my emotions, I have adoration, I have, I have repentance, and I have transformation. 
change over time. When a church is a worshiping community, there's the ability of that church to grow strong. I don't know that they always grow wide in terms of numbers, lots of numbers. I don't know that they always grow deep in terms of their knowledge of the scripture, but I know this, there's a strong force spiritually in the world, in their communities. There's something powerful and attractive by a a worshiping community. The number one thing that our first-time guests comment on is the music here. And here's what they say, because they don't have knowledge for it. They don't have an understanding. They say, that music's good. And they think they're commenting on the quality of the execution of the the music. But give them a few months if they hang around and their comments begin to change. It isn't that the music is simply good, qualitatively. It's that it is having a good impact on them. They're transforming. They're changing. This is what worship does. Now, over the next few weeks, I'm going to give you a chance. I'm going to give you a call to invite people to walk under our sign, Real Love Now, and come into this room and have an encounter with the real God. And not doll themselves up, not clean themselves up, not get Christian before they come to church, but to come exactly as they are. They can really be them and come in this place with no hope or desire or knowledge at all to worship God, but to be a part of a worshiping community. And let me tell you what's going to happen if you do it. The dancing hand of God is going to move over this congregation, and some of them, in that one moment, their life will be changed for eternity. As God manifests his presence in this room. That's the power of worship. And some of them will have words for it, Some of them won't. Some will come for a time and disappear. But there will be a few that will come and it literally will change their lives. That's why Four Corners always has to be a worshiping church. That's why we always have to worship. That's why no matter what happens here, no matter how I disappoint you, no matter where this church goes, no matter what happens, you have to be a worshiper. And not just a worshiper at home, not just a worshiper in God's cathedral of creation, but a worshiping community come together celebrating how great and awesome and powerful our God is because it writes our perspective. It transforms us from the inside out, our whole heart. And so for the next 10 years, worship will be a bedrock. It'll be one of those foundational stones that props up everything we do. And the degree to which we do it will be the degree to which it makes a huge, powerful, transformative difference in our lives and in the community at large. Why don't you grab out your Connect card and let's take a few steps together as a congregation. Well, I warned you, I was a little full. And I'm not empty. So uh, next week, we'll keep going and look at another stone. But first of all, I wonder if there's anybody in the room who doesn't yet know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Today, I want to give you a chance to do that. I want to give you a chance to do the ultimate act of worship and surrender your life fully to him. And say that next step A on your card says that today I'm making Jesus my Savior and my Lord. If you want to do that, check the box. In a moment, we're going to pray and give you a chance to use your own words or borrow mine and look to God and say, God, I'm a sinner. Would you save me? Would you raise me to life? I want to give my life over to you. Or how about next step B? You want to get baptized. I was thrilled by the baptism reports that happened while I was gone. We celebrate a life change. How about next step C here? Here's the prayer that I'm praying every day this week. It's directly connected to worship. God, help me be amazed at what's truly amazing 
and end my attraction to things that are really insignificant. See, that's what worship does. You're amazing. Amazing grace. Help me to be enthralled and captivated with what's really amazing and let the things of this world just stop being important to me. Join me in praying this prayer every morning this week. Or how about next step D? I'm going to invite one person who I know is not normally attending worship to regularly come with me. If they used to attend but don't, I wonder if you could pick up the call and say, hey, I'd like to see you at church. Would you come with me? I'll, I'll buy you dinner afterwards. I'll go, we'll go to lunch together. And invite one person who doesn't know the power and the transforming agent of worship to come and be a part of us. Now, how about next step E? We're gearing up for 10th anniversary in a small group launch. I'm very excited. We're going to be rallying around this book right here called Unshakable for our small groups. It's written by a mentor of mine. His name is Nelson Searcy. And this particular book, the foreword, is written by a guy you know. His name's Ben Hodges. And there's his little picture on the back right there. So we're going to be rallying around this book uh, together. I'll tell you all about that next week. But if, you want, if you're thinking, being willing at all to lead a small group, check the box. We'll be in touch with you. Let's pray about these things right now. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you are a great and awesome God. God, I pray that as we focus on you, the things of this world will grow dim, that we would give our whole hearts over to you in worship, that the power of worship would be evident in this place, that people who'd walk through our doors wouldn't just sense the quality of our programming, they'd sense the power of Jesus behind it all. God, I pray that we wouldn't just do this as a group. We would do it as individuals. We would give our whole hearts over to our great Savior who raised us from the dead. I pray for each person who's deciding to make Jesus as their Lord and Savior. I pray for those, Lord, who you're calling right now to begin to lead a small group. I pray for those of us that are so captivated with life that we forget how awesome you are. Be with us, Father. I prayed in the name of Jesus, the strong and holy Son of God. Amen. Amen.